Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni here uh, as usual. And and John, we have, I think it's fair to say, uh, a rather bombshell development uh, this week to share with uh, the audience. And that's something that happened uh, this week in our uh, Michelle Cochran v. Securities and Exchange Commission case. The, Mark, the if S- you could make up an abuse of the administrative state, uh that would show everything. This is really part of it. It's an incredible development, and and um, and and I think you can't overstate it. It's it's shocking. Uh, and uh, what what happened? Just to cut to the chase is that the the SEC admitted and filed court papers in in the Cochran case and and another case called Jarkasy that we have been following and and uh, and watching, admitting that. Uh, it turns out that the enforcement personnel at the Securities and Exchange Commission have had access through the shared computer system at the SEC. They've had access to the adjudicatory side of the House and the the, the sort of homework, if you will, of the of the judges. So the prosecutors could read the had access to what the judges were saying and writing. Uh, on their side uh, of the house. So this is exactly why when we talk about the problem with uh, housing the the prosecutorial function and the adjudicatory function in the same agency, uh, it, it's really even worse than I thought, John, because I, t- to me, I, you know, I knew that these folks that would pass each other in the hallways and they would hang out and there'd be this sort of a collegiality and it's sort of a, a, an inappropriate a tendency for the for the judges to favor the prosecutors, but I had no idea that the prosecutors were actually able to read the bench memos uh, of the judges in in front of whom they were appearing, and that is just the, the 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 fundamental violation of due process, where one side's lawyers gets to to read what the judge is doing, and the other side's lawyers don't, uh, is shocking. Now I, I hasten to add that we don't know the extent of this yet. And I mean that in a couple of ways. We don't know how many cases this extends to. The SEC has admitted that it happened in Cochrane and Jarkissi and additional cases, but they haven't said how many additional cases. They haven't said how long this has been going on. They haven't said when they discovered this problem or, uh, or, or how long it was between when they discovered the problem and when they told the court uh, about the problem. Uh, so there's a whole lot here that we don't know uh, in that respect. The other thing we don't know is exactly how often this happens. So the all that the SEC has admitted is that some, and they've used the the, the terminology uh, administrative personnel on the enforcement side. And John, I don't know exactly what they're trying to get at there, but I think what they're trying to say is not the lawyers, not the actual attorneys is what they're trying to, to suggest. So, but we don't know that yet. And 
there's an investigation underway and we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, it, you could imagine a couple of different versions of this, right? You could imagine that there was some well-meaning administrative uh, staffer on the enforcement side who said, hey, look, take a look at this or look at what I found, you know, on the uh, on the computer database and started downloading things. And the SEC has admitted that these things were downloaded off of the adjudicatory side of the database and moved over and then re-downloaded onto the enforcement side of the database. Now, I'm, I'm prepared to believe that, all, that that there weren't any attorneys involved in that movement. But do we know how many attorneys read the material once it came over to the enforcement side of the database? I don't think we do. We also don't know at this point whether the administrative folks, John, were instructed to do anything that they did in terms of, of, of downloading that material and moving it over to the enforcement side. Uh, and if it turns out that an attorney thought that they were that it would be cute to say, well, I'm not going to go on and read the judge's, you know, read the judge's uh, uh, memo or draft opinion myself, but uh, I'm going to have this staffer download it and move it over into this other place. And then I'm going to read it as though that somehow solves the the conflict of interest or the ethical breach there. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't know yet is my point though, exactly the extent of this. But what we do know is that this would not be possible if these were not housed in the same place. And that is why the structural separation of the Constitution matters. It's why the legislative uh, legislative responsibilities need to stay with the legislature. The judicial responsibilities need to stay with Article Three judges. And the executive branch needs to stick to its knitting and not be doing legislation or adjudication. That's, that's I think, the most important takeaway here, John. And, and I think another takeaway, Marcus, is that is that um, you, you, there's probably an unconcern. One of the things is these, these uh, over at the SEC, they're prosecuting one day and being an ALJ the next day. How can that not be corrupting? Well, I think, I think it tends to be, I mean, we've, we've seen that at the, at the NLRB has had that sort of wearing, you know, wearing one hat one day and one hat another. Yeah. Uh, And they don't do that at the SEC. Uh, but I think this is worse. I think if you're if you're actually able to see into what the judge is doing in real time, and and again, that's not that much hasn't been proven. What so far what the SEC has said is that yes, some of these things were downloaded, but by the time they were looked at, they were no longer relevant to the decisions that were being made, and that, that not, no important decisions were affected by you know by this breach and so forth. Uh, yep. But, but in, has any initial disclosure ever been as bad as what actually happened? I mean, what what scandal do we know of that the initial disclosure of it uh, was actually less bad th- or more bad than what actually happened? I, that's These folks have looked at this. They know they had a problem. They know they had to tell the courts this. And, I, you know, in my view, it is likely that they've put the best face on it they can, but that more will come out. Well, what's interesting to me is they felt like they had to tell the courts why. Because in the case of Cochran, it's up at the United States Supreme Court now. And the SEC knows that when you have an independent judiciary overseeing what you're doing, you can't get away with shenanigans. Suppose that they had discovered that this was going on, but that it didn't affect any cases that were pending in Article Three courts. And I'll remind you that the only reason that the Cochran case is in an Article Three court is because Cochran sued the SEC. 
NCLA representing Ms. Cochran sued the SEC on her behalf. They wanted her to still be stuck in an administrative proceeding at this point in time. And I would wager heavily, John, that if she had not sued the SEC and her case were still just in front of an administrative law judge, we would never hear about the fact that that this had gone on. They would have and, cleaned And you this don't up wager her- heavily on anything but the Jayhawks. Which I'm glad you mentioned that because <laughs> of all weeks, uh, the congratulations to my uh, to my Kansas Jayhawks. I've been, as John knows, I've been on cloud nine all week with uh, with uh, the national championship uh, being secured on Monday night. So so congratulations uh, and uh, all those all those Jayhawks fans out there in in far western Kansas, uh, which uh, which I guess some people call Colorado, but uh, <laughs> glad to. Glad to see them. Glad to see them do well. Uh, so, but but, back, back to this. Back to this, Mark. So, here's the thing. What do you think the future? What do you think the consequences are going to be? How do you what 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 do you think the courts are going to say about this? I mean, the federal courts, obviously. And what do you think the SEC is going to do in the future? Do you think they're going to um, brush themselves off and say, uh, uh, "Meant to do that. Everything's fine," and walk off, or do you think there's going to be some changes? Well, so far, what they've done, the commission has hired. Uh, and, and I hasten to add, I don't know what the inspector general is doing because that's that's an independent uh, sort of function and the commission doesn't control that. But what the commission has done is they've hired an outside entity to come in and do a, a forensic investigation, kind of a computer forensic investigation. I think they're trying to figure out uh, who did what to whom. And, uh, and I'm prepared to believe that the commission was not uh, complicit in this, that as soon as the commission found out, they they decided to get to the bottom of it. Uh, if we find out differently, then, you know, as you say, sometimes these scandals metastasize and and they turn out to be even worse than, than first reported. In fact, they usually turn out to be worse. But but the one thing that the commission has done, which I think is inexcusable, is that they've hired an entity to do the investigation that already does millions of dollars of business with the commission as expert witnesses. So they have a conflict of interest that they, they don't want the SEC's uh, uh, sort of ability to litigate to be compromised because then their business as as expert evidence folks would be uh, would be affected. So are they going to be uh, providing the the absolute uh, unvarnished truth here about what happened? I'm I'm a little skeptical that that the commission has hired the right entity to bring that about. And you know I think if a breach of ethics like this had occurred in private litigation or uh, that, that raise red flags like this, that you wouldn't see them uh, hiring uh, someone that they had a conflict of interest with uh, to, to conduct the investigation. And you certainly wouldn't see the federal courts bemused by that sort of uh, decision process. So we'll see what happens. I, I think the SEC is going to say, and they're already starting to say, this is an isolated incident. This is a control deficiency is the term that they've been using that uh, that this was just something with the computer files, and we're going to make sure that that we keep separate computer files going forward, and 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 you know the controls will be better, and that's going to solve the problem, and no one ever has to worry about this uh, again. But it's just not true. That the, the powers have to be structurally separated; they have to not be under the same roof. That's what our Constitution said. That's what our founders gave us. And this scandal shows what happens when you take constitutional shortcuts when you stop honoring the structural separate separation uh, among the three branches uh, of government, the way that these independent agencies like the SEC and the FTC combine legislative and executive and, and, 
and judicial power. Uh, it needs to stop. Uh, the constitutional order will not be restored until the adjudicative function is returned exclusively to Article 3 courts. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you. We have filed at the New Civil Liberties Alliance an an amicus brief uh, this past week at the U.S. Supreme Court in an important case. Uh, This is the Gun Owners of America Incorporated v. Merrick Garland in his official capacity as Attorney General of the United States. And there are a few other uh, folks on the petitioner's uh, side of this and, and, of course, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms uh, and uh, and the director of, of of BATF are additional respondents uh, in this as well. But this is a petition for a writ of certiorari to the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the Sixth Circuit. And for those of, in our audience who have been following NCLA's cases, uh, you may recall that our Apotian v. Garland case is currently pending cert uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court. And then we have uh, our Cargill uh, case in in the Fifth Circuit, which is currently uh, we have filed for a rehearing on Bonk there. Uh, but this is a different case. This is not one that, that NCLA represented uh, the parties on, but it's very similar uh, to the cases that, that NCLA uh, has brought about the bump stocks and the, and the bump stock ban. And what happened in, in this case is that the, the district court uh, ruled in favor of ATF. Then it went up to the Sixth Circuit and a panel of the Sixth Circuit ruled in favor of the gun owners of America and said that uh, that uh, that Chevron couldn't be couldn't be used in a criminal case, and that Chevron, uh, you know, was what, what couldn't be used when it was disclaimed by the government. And uh, furthermore, said that that the uh, statute, the proper interpretation of the statute, was one that uh, that would not consider bump stocks uh, to be machine guns. Well, the Sixth Circuit then reheard that entire case uh, on Bonk. And they split uh, eight to eight. Uh, Judge Riedler uh, recused. There are 17 active judges in the Sixth Circuit. But Judge Riedler, I think, must have worked on this issue at DOJ or something uh, because he, he recused. And so it was split eight to eight. And what happens when courts of appeals split uh, evenly like that is that the district court decision gets upheld. I've always thought it was odd that that the district court opinion is what gets upheld rather than the rather than the panel decision of, of the uh, of the court of appeals, but uh, that is, that is the way that it works. And so uh, as a result, the gunners of gun owners of America have been forced to uh, tee up their case at the U S Supreme court. And the questions presented are whether the definition of machine gun uh, found in 26 USC 5845 B is clear and unambiguous and whether bump stocks meet that definition. The second question is whether ATF's interpretation of a criminal statute is entitled to deference under Chevron, uh, thereby displacing the rule of lenity. And the third question is whether courts should give deference to an agency's interpretation of a federal statute when the government expressly waives Chevron. 
So if you've been following the Apotian case, you'll recognize that the second and third questions presented there are very similar to the questions that are presented uh, in the Apotian case. And, and John, I don't, I don't remember if we've been giving uh, the audience the frequent updates on this, but I think we're up to 10 or 11 times now that the Apotian case has been rescheduled for conference in front of- No, we, of we haven't justices. given the updates, but it but it has been amazing how many times the Supreme Court has said, oh, we'll, do, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, I think we'll look at this again next week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, why, why, uh, why do today what you could put off to tomorrow seems to be the, uh, the reigning theory here. Uh, but uh, one of the, and there's lots of reasons why the court reschedules things, and you don't always know what the you know what the mindset of the justices is. In fact, you usually don't. Uh, and and trying to hazard a guess at these things is is probably a fool's errand. That said, uh, let me uh, undertake a fool's errand and suggest that uh, it could be that the court has been waiting for the gun owners of America cert petition to arrive on its doorstep so that it could look at that cert petition and the Apotian cert petition at the same time and figure out for itself which one of these is a better vehicle. Uh, you know, are there issues in one case that aren't in the other? Are there, are there, are there uh, you know, perhaps uh, uh, any sort of vehicle problems with one case or the other? Uh, is, there, is there one case that, that presents questions that the other one doesn't? Or and all these different things that sometimes will lead the court to grant cert in one case and not in a very similar case. And so it may have just thought, well, they didn't want to grant in a potion and then have this case come up and say, oh, well, this looks like a, a better option uh, to us. But you'll remember that the potion case also had a an en banc court in the 10th Circuit, but then the en banc was dismissed as improvidently granted. So you've had a lot of, of judges in the courts of appeals look at this issue and they've come out you know, uh six ways from Sunday, I guess there, there's, there's just not a, a lot of, uh, well, I, I suppose you could say roughly that the judges who've been willing to apply Chevron have all sided with ATF and the judges that have not applied Chevron have all sided, uh, have all decided that ATF's interpretation of the statute is not correct. So Chevron is clearly important in these, uh, in these cases. Decisive. Uh, Absolutely decisive. And and so I do think that these cases set up the Chevron question very well. And if the court takes a pass on both of these, boy, I'm just I don't understand what it's doing if it's not willing to uh, settle questions that have so vexed the the lower courts here. I mean, we we, we may not have a, a circuit split yet in the sense that uh, that. Uh, that at least the 10th circuit and the 6th circuit and the DC circuit ultimately came out the same way. But we do, John, have a, a case from the, from the Navy Marine uh, U.S. Court of Appeals that decided explicitly that bump stocks are not machine guns. And so, you know, if, if anybody knows what a machine gun is, you'd think it would be the military. And they've decided that bump stocks are not machine guns. I think it's interesting, and I, that may not be a traditional circuit split, but it sure seems to me a kind of circuit split that the Supreme Court should be uh, concerned about because you would have a situation then where uh, someone, uh, a soldier who's in possession of a bump stock is, is going to be prosecuted or not prosecuted depending on whether they're, uh, whether they're tried in a civilian court or a military court. 
and that that seems like a like a bad sort of a divergence in the law to well, allow well to, particularly to when the civilian court is more harsh i mean who ever heard of that mm-hmm. yeah good point and and so uh you know we haven't said anything uh new and original in in the amicus brief that ncla uh, filed this week we've we've run through all the arguments that we've made before in the opposition case and, and the cargill case and we've we've pointed out that the lower court's decision to defer to uh, the agency's interpretation of a statute with criminal uh, applications uh, is a is a problem from a constitutional perspective uh, that that there are uh, th- that on that point whether or not you can apply uh, Chevron in a criminal context that there is a split uh, in the circuits on that question uh, and that the split is a is a really a result of mixed signals that the Supreme Court has sent about whether or not Chevron deference applies in that situation. And that's all the more reason why the court should take the case uh, and decide it. Uh, and and then there are the, these issues that we always talk about at NCLA of the due process problem, uh, particularly in a criminal context where you have the government siding or the judges siding with the executive branch's interpretation of the statute rather than the independent judge coming up with the independent judge's interpretation of the statute, which is really what a criminal defendant has a right to uh, under the Constitution. Uh, we've then also pointed out that that granting Chevron deference when ATF has explicitly waived it uh, conflicts with how the Supreme Court has handled this uh, and is also inconsistent with the underlying rationale of Chevron, which is for those who want to defend Chevron, they say, well, this is what uh, you know, Chevron means that that the legislative branch is giving certain decision making power to the legis- or to the uh, uh, to the administrative agency. Well, if the administrative agency has chosen not to use that power that's been delegated to it, then the judges should equally be respecting that, not imposing Chevron against the will of the administrative of agency. Uh, so that's you know that's another piece of this. And then of course we have uh, agreed with the gun owners of America that uh, that the machine gun uh, statute uh, in, interpreting bump stocks to be machine guns has a has an impact on lots of law-abiding citizens and that's another reason uh, why the court uh, should look at this uh, but you know but overall John uh, as as you well know the new civil liberties alliance ha- doesn't have a have a, a an opinion on the second amendment here what what we have continued to say in this case and others is that ATF does not have statutory authority to change a statute by just reinterpreting it. That's not the way this works. If Congress wants to change the law and make something illegal that wasn't illegal before, it needs to pass a new law. And it needs to be Congress that decides the criminality of things, not the ATF or some other administrative agency. And I think what you said before that we didn't say anything new original. We, what we said was things that are tried and true. And so I, I think that tried and true part is what's going on here. Of course, that's got to be the way it is. You can't have people who nobody knows who they are making up the criminal law in some building, you know, where where most Americans wouldn't even know to go to say, no, you're wrong about this. Of course, these days they can't go to Congress either because uh, Nancy Pelosi has it uh, has it closed down to the public, or at least uh, last I checked, it was still closed down uh, to the public. Uh, in in fact, I saw yesterday that uh i saw the story yesterday i'm not sure when this uh when this happened probably earlier in the week uh, but uh senator marshall from kansas had been de- leading a private tour there in the capital of with some of the truckers who had come in as part of the convoy from kansas 
and he was reported to the uh, to the Department of Justice by some Democrat staffer on Capitol Hill. Uh, for what exactly is unclear, because you're allowed to give tours to your constituents, but uh, but anyway, uh, that happened. So we're uh, uh, you know, we'll keep you posted on what happens with the Gun Owners of America uh, case. It could be that the Supreme Court will grant cert in this case and not in our Potion case. And if that happens, we'll continue to be involved in, a, <laughs> in an amicus capacity. Uh, but obviously, we'd love to see the court uh, grant uh, the Potion case or grant both cases. And, and get this, uh, get this, get these Chevron questions decided once and for all, at least in this context of uh, statutes with criminal applications. We'll be back with more right after this. Thanks for listening to Administrative Static.